Tradman, back again. What's up, man? Oh, not too much. Uh, I've had a busy uh, couple weeks. Uh, how about yourself? Kind of the same. I want to apologize to our listeners who were waiting for something last week and that something never came. Real life just kind of got in the way here. Um, I personally was at a kind of a lawyer's retreat thing last weekend. But I think the bigger news happened over in the Mooney household, Jason. Yeah, so a couple weeks ago on, uh, what month are we in? September 28th, uh, my wife gave birth to a baby boy. Um, mom and baby are doing well. Um, baby, uh, The baby is doing what babies do, keep you awake at night and, uh, <laughs> and you know, bring joy, of course. Um I, if you don't mind, I do want to take a, take a moment just to talk about one of his namesakes for the listeners. Please, that, please. For the listeners that are not aware, I mean, I'm pretty sure most of our listeners, particularly the Catholics, Catholic ones, will know about the story about Saint Maximilian Kobe. Um, so our child is named Kobe Capon, but uh, I don't know that many people know the story about uh, Father Emil Capon. Uh, yeah, I myself just learned this story, I think, at the Knights of Columbus meeting where uh, uh, Dr. Bieliakowski kind of gave a quick talk about him. That was the first time that I had heard of him. Yeah, so his story is pretty inspiring, to say the least. Um, and there's actually been some recent events that have brought uh, his name back up within the, the Catholic Church. He is uh, a servant of God. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I do ask listeners in their charity to pray for his beatification and canonization. Um, but, you know, he, he is the most decorated U.S. military chaplain. Um, a few years ago under President Bar- Barack Obama, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. And the guy that he actually rescued and carried on a pretty much a death march to the POW camp was in attendance. Um, so, wow. so father Capon was a Korean war, uh, veteran. He, um, like I said, he died in a POW camp. I won't get into the whole story, but I, but for any listeners, please do look it up. There's videos about it. There's, you know, articles you can read about it, but, it, you know, he was such an inspiration to his, um, to his fellow men of all religions, um, in the POW camp that even a, if I remember right, even a Jewish uh, POW prisoner in honor of Father Capon carved out a wood crucifix that they actually came out of the camp with um, wow. as they were leading Father Capon to the hospital because he was sick from the from the treatment that he was getting there. And then, of course, he was making sacrifices of food, you know, that he, he would have for himself or other men, water. You know, he was helping men boil water or get get more food than the than the starvation rations they were getting. So him, so he himself became sick and ill, and they were taking him to the the hospital there at the POW camp. That's what the which I'm which I'm sure was just incredible. I'm sure yeah. it was top notch uh, medical care. <laughs> well, yes, and, and, uh, yeah. That's what I was gonna say is the uh, North Koreans or the Koreans at the time called it the. The, a hospital, but um, I believe the prisoners called it a death house because no one ever came out of it alive once they went say, in. Probably, probably just a room they lay you down and wait for you to die. I would imagine. Yeah, and and, and that might be the most uh, <clears throat> humane way they treat you in there. Um, mm. But 
but anyway, his last, some of his last words were very inspiring. Like they said, as he was taken, as the Koreans were taking him away, uh, you know, they were crying and, and sad and fearful that they were about to lose a man they loved. And he turned around and said to them, um, um, you know, don't, don't worry about me, boys. I'm going where I've always wanted to go. When I get there, I'll pray for you. And then, <laughs> and then he blessed the men that were taking him to, to the hospital. And, uh, as far as I know, that's the, the last words of father Capon. And, you know, recently they just identified his remains. Um, so, you know, a, a bunch of remains had been sent back, I guess, from Korea years ago. And, uh, I guess through DNA technology and, and whatnot, they were actually able to identify his remains. And I believe they, they had every bone except for a few fingers. Um, they were able to, to identify and, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, yeah, didn't didn't they just recently like reinter him? Well, uh, I was about to say Kansas. The the ironic thing was is that the night, the, or the day that Kobe, our, our son Kobe, was born, we were we hadn't decided what name. We we were torn between Leo Gregory and Kobe Capon, and then we decided to go with with uh, Kobe Capon because Saint Maximilian Kobe is one of my uh, all time favorite saints. Oh, here, here, um, here, here. And then, and then, you know, hearing the story of Father Capon, it just seemed like those two names went really well together to me. So anyway, after we named him, I, I kid you not, I was flipping through the channels at the hospital, and it's a Catholic hospital here in Houston, actually in Sugarland, And uh, so they have EWTN, and I'm flipping through it, and, and I tell my wife, I said, look, on, on the guide here, it says the vigil mass, a funeral mass for Father Emil Capon. So the day that he was wow. born was the day they had the vigil mass. So we watched that, and then the next day we watched the actual um, funeral mass itself. Um, but it, but it was just kind of a ironic. Uh, that's way a sign. Worked that's out. a sign, man. <laughs> that's what me. That's Absolutely. what my wife said. She goes, she goes. That's crazy. Maybe, you know, maybe that uh, was a sign that we picked the right name for Colby because you know, in the names you want names should mean something, especially as a Catholic and. You know, we we try to pick the names of, of our children, uh, at least since we've been Catholic, on great saints that we would like them to, you know, emulate in some form or fashion. Of course, and absolutely. Uh, so, and of course, I think I think you picked two good names. It sounds like, um, and I think they're. I think it's very timely too, because um, these are. I think oftentimes people think about lives of the saints. And they, they think about people who lived like in the, in the dark ages, you know, the 15, 1600s or something like that. And no, there, there's saint, there are saints living today that we don't even know about. Right. And, and, uh, venerating these, these sort of what I call modern saints, saints of the 20th century, um, I think is very timely because it sort of reminds us that, you know, we are the church militant and we are called to be holy at all times. So, um, yeah, I, 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 congratulations, man. I think that's awesome. Yeah, no. So it was a, it's a really cool story to go with, you know, about, about his name and and what happened on the day he was born. You know, down down the road as he gets older, uh, to share with him. So, but anyway, like, like I said, if if anybody wants to know further, please, uh, definitely look in look into Father Emil Capon, or I guess in this case, servant of God, because he's been declared a servant of God. Um, and then just pray for his beatification and canonization. 
Well, we want to definitely say congratulations to you and your wife and, and definitely young Colby Capon and um, just, uh, you know, many, many blessings. And, uh, you know, I hope everything is uh, uh, continues to go well with uh, with your new son. And congratulations, man. That's awesome. Thank you. That's great news. We were we were waiting on that with bated breath, I think, at the last episode. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of uh, ready to go there right at the end. Um, well, I guess we should go ahead and pray before we get too much further into this uh, episode. Um, are you cool with the, the Vini Sancti Spiritus? Yes, sir. All right. And for all of you who are listening, we invite you to join us uh, to invoke the divine blessing, to summon the Holy Spirit, to uh, help us have an edifying discussion, and um, keep us within the bosom of wisdom. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Veni Sancti Spiritus, repletor acorda fidelium, et tui amores in e signi macende. Imite spiritum tuum et creabuntur. Et renovabis facium tare. Oremus. Deus qui corda fidelium, Sancti Spiritus, illustrationi docuisti. Da nobis iniorum spiritu recta sapere, et de eos semper consolationis cadere per Christum Dominum nostrum. Amen. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen. So, in thinking about what we wanted to talk about, uh, we were actually planning to do this episode last week, but like I said, uh, life just sort of got in the way. But that's okay, because it gave us some extra prep time, I think. Um, we wanted to look into this uh, encyclical called Rerum Novarum. Um, it's published by Pope Leo the Thirteenth in 1891. And the reason we wanted to get into this is this is sort of the beginning of... Uh, this is sort of the foundational text of what will come to be called Catholic social teaching. And Rerum Navarum is very interesting because it deals with capital. It's called on capital and labor, but essentially it deals with um, um, the, the, the controversies surrounding capitalism, socialism, and some of these more modern things that are uh, coming about at the, at the end of the 19th century that are radically changing people's lives, um, not just in Europe, but all over the world. Um, for the first time, we're seeing large industrial factories. Um, we're seeing um, the, the sort of mechanization of labor. And, and we're seeing... Um, we're seeing life transformed almost um, from, from ways that it had never been. Um, it, you got to remember, pre-industrial capitalism, it was artisans and craftsmen who made things, right? And so now um, you have unskilled laborers making things, making the widgets and things like that. So they're a little bit, they're disconnected from the things that they produce in ways that they had never been before. And this leads to profound social upheavals all over the world. So I, um, Pope Leo XIII wants to address these things. And uh, it's really quite an interesting text. Did you get a chance to to, to read into Rerum Navarum, Jason? Yes, I, I read into it here. And, you know, one of the things that, that jumped out at me quite a bit, um, because it's kind of a mixed message I feel like we get um, a lot today from within and without the church, um, you know, and, and, and especially among atheists or agnostics as Christians, we're typically, you know, taught, you know, we're told, well, um, you know, Jesus was a socialist, you know, basically people that are pushing for governmental welfare, you know, trying to say that charity is at the end of the barrel of a gun, you know, that we should be <laughs> taxed to no end. And, 
you know, Pope Pope Leo the Thirteenth here, you know, he, he makes a point in in in, in the, the encyclical here. He talks about you know, no one should be forced to share. However, that does not take away our obligations as individuals to help out as needed. And and, and you know, I, I feel like today this uh, socialist agenda that that uh, Pope. Pope Leo XIII was condemning then, we're still fighting today, and I feel like in many ways it's infiltrated within the Catholic Church more than it, than it, than it seemed like it used to be. Um, w- would you agree with that? Or? I, I think so. There, there's, there's this weird resurgence of, uh, of, of socialism as, a, you know, as a, this thing that's to be sought after. Um, and yeah, there's there's definitely circles in okay, well so there's this whole misconception of Catholic social teaching that because Catholic social teaching is critical of some elements of capitalism, that means mm-hmm. Catholic social teaching advocates for socialism. Right. Not true. Not true. What I think uh the holy uh the holy father was getting to here in this encyclical is there there are things about capitalism that I think he likes. For for example, the uh, this whole deal of choice, right? So so people entering into um, bargaining agreements freely, deciding amongst themselves what the price of something should be, and they have free choice to participate in the marketplace or not, right? And I think the Pope likes that element of capitalism he likes the freedom and the and the free choice that it um that it gives people he is a little i think concerned about the morality of a system that is purely driven by markets so for example markets will uh will not just promote things that people need it'll primarily promote things that people want and sometimes the things we want are not holy and not good or not things that we should want. So I think what the Pope gets to here is we can, we can have a, a market-based economy, and, and that's fine, but we should never forget that our morals don't come from the marketplace. So just because it is advantageous to do something or to advocate for a certain cause or to, or to consume a certain product doesn't mean that it's morally acceptable to do that. Um, so I, pornography is a great example that comes to mind. So in a market-based economy where the marketplace drives what people consume and what sort of products are made, there is obviously a huge market for pornography. But where we get our morals from, where we get our moral center from is still the church. And so there, that's the thing I think primarily that we're getting at here. That's very convoluted. And I hope we can clear, (laughs) clarify some of that up as we talk a little bit more about it. But I do think that there's a weird resurgence of socialism as I often say that there's every, every new generation of young people has to try it. You know, because if there's an old saying, if you're a young person and you're not a socialist, you have no heart. But if you're an old person and you are a socialist, you have no brain. You ever heard that saying? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's I think it's I think it's kind of primarily amongst the young people who um, 
you know, are dis are are dis uh, what are we, disillusioned with um, some of the directions our our country has taken and our our you know well in globalist market economy. Well, and rightfully so in some cases, as far as the disillusionment of what they're seeing. But you know, uh, he, uh, Pope Leo also talks about you know in the sense of uh, unfettered capitalism, in the sense that we also got to be careful how we how we treat our workers and 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 people you know if you're if, if you're employing somebody which is right because you've got to honor the worker's dignity as a person um right right so you know he, he talks about that but i also really like how he mentions how he kind of puts the nail in the coffin for for socialism in the sense that he talks about private property being a fundamental uh, a fundamental natural right, natural law. Yes. And that, and that, you know, I, I believe he quoted from Thomas Aquinas on that, um, if I remember right. But, you know, natural laws, you know, line up very much with more, with moral laws and moral issues. So the fact that, and, and that's one way that, the, or one reason the church condemns socialism is because it, in, in many senses it calls for the abolition of private property which would violate that natural law. Right, yeah. A, a private property, far from being immoral, is actually, um, is, is, is very much something that, it's a, like, like the, the encyclical says, it's a natural right. So um, to, when you de-property people um, in, without, um, what, what, I, what I, in America we would call the due process of law, the, that phrase does not appear anywhere in Catholic social teaching, but essentially when you de-property people, you violate their rights. Now there are some cases, and you know, if you've been convicted of a heinous crime and you go to prison and the government can take your property to make restitution or, or what have you, that's one thing. But um, it, it is profoundly immoral to, um, to take something, and, and in fact, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not steal. And so the idea that uh, property is somehow immoral, this goes all the way back to, uh, to Exodus. You can't steal something if property isn't considered a thing, right? So, um, yeah, no, it's, that's, that's definitely a thing. And Pope talks a lot about how they treat workers. That, that is a big uh, chunk of this encyclical because at the turn of the century, around this time this encyclical was written, factories were in some cases, in fact, in most cases, pretty horrible places to work, and they were dangerous. And workers got paid, you know, pennies an hour to perform very dangerous work. And if you took a day off, you could be replaced. So you, you couldn't take a day off. You worked seven days a week. You worked, you know, on uh, uh, horrible hours and all these things. So that's primarily what, what the Pope's getting at. He's saying, yeah, capitalism is great. You, you produce a lot of uh, material wealth with capitalism and it grants people a lot of freedom. But you still have a moral duty to how you treat, what is it we're always saying, to, to give, the, give, the laborer, give the laborer his wages, right? right? You still have that moral duty, that affirmative moral duty to treat workers with a certain level of dignity. And so there ought to be some limitations um, to this capitalist system. So for example, 
of would you make more money if you had your factory operating on Sunday? Sure. But you that's one instance in which the church would say we need to limit not so much we need to not do so much what the market demands, but we have uh, bigger obligations to fulfill in terms of in terms of Sunday. So well, uh, going back to the you know the the labor deserves its wages. Have you heard what the new tra- some of the new translations put that as? No. What the, what, is, what does it say? Bippity boppity, give me the zoppity. <laughs> I saw <laughs> leading up to this episode. I saw. I don't. I don't. I don't have that translation <laughs> of the Holy Scriptures. I need to get well, that. Well, so leading up to this episode, uh, on a side note, we <laughs> real quick. I had actually come across a meme. So it, it was make I can't remember the name of the translation, but it was a newer translation of the Bible. And I actually went and looked at the translation, and it, okay. it, it is quite a bit harder to understand, at least it was for me, the, the way they tried to modernize the English. It was actually quite a bit more difficult to understand than just reading, um, you, you know, like the Dewey Rames, say, or the ESV, or, you know, right. you know for our Protestant right. brethren, the New King James Version, or... Or whatnot, but anyway, that came from. Um, so, for any Office fans, there's an episode where Michael is going to ask for a raise because he hadn't had a raise in like ten years or thirteen years, whatever it was. And one of the guys he work or that works for him uh, is a black guy, but he likes to mess with Michael because Michael's kind of kind of stupid, right? And, <laughs> and he likes he goes. I know this episode. Yeah, I know he, the episode you're talking he about. He tells it's him really funny. He tells him he goes. I just couldn't help myself, but. I, but I gave Michael some uh, street slang that he could use. And then Michael walks and goes, bippity boppity, give me the zoppity. And so, <laughs> so they, so the meme was making fun of the translation, you know, the old, the old, the old uh, translation, the labor deserves right. his wages. And then the new one, bippity boppity, give me the zoppity. But uh, that's funny. But uh, 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 getting back on topic here. Uh, yeah, get back on topic, man. <laughs> Stop trying to distract me. Pope uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth also mentions in here the relationship between how the family relates to the state. You know, he he says in here in uh, paragraph thirteen, the family has at least equal rights with the state in the choice and pursuit of the things needful to its preservation and just and its just liberty, and. It, it kind of made me go back and think about, I'm sure you've read the law from the French author Frederick uh, Bastiat, if I said his last name it, right. It, it it does not ring a bell. You might have said it right. I wouldn't know. Okay, so it was uh, early to mid-1800s that it was published. So uh, actually before this, right, because this was published... Let's 1890, see. where is it? Let me go. 1891. 1891. Okay. So right. th- this French author talks about, it's a real quick read. You, you ought to check it out one day. Um, but anyway, he argues that the work of the government, uh, you know, consists only of the people that are authorizing it and that, and that the, the, the government has no power, at least no legitimate power beyond what an individual would have. And, he actually bases some of his arguments on uh, the pursuit of life, liberty, and private property based on the natural law itself. Um, hmm. So, you know, you can even see uh, before this encyclical came out, people were already making the argument, you know, that, okay, well, private property is is a natural right. Liberty is a natural right, Um you know, your, your life is a natural right. And, uh, you know, the state doesn't have, uh, 
the power or should not have the power beyond what an individual would have and you know and should not be allowed to suppress those natural rights that you have as a person right hence one reason slavery is horrible um right right but uh but yeah no i mean he you know he, he says in here in paragraph seven there's no need to bring in the state man precedes the state and possesses prior to the formation of any state the right of providing for for the substance of his body so if if you have the government step in in a socialistic way because here in the beginning he's talking mainly about socialism right Right. If you have the state step in, then you are violating his right to provide for himself and for his children and for their future. Because he, I can't remember how he words it exactly, but he he's saying in a sense that, uh, you know, as fathers, as our children, as as we raise them and as they grow up and live their lives, you know, even after after we die, they are still, uh, man, I forgot how he words it, but basically carrying on your your legacy and and mm. and as fathers of the family who who are providing for their family we, we we should have the right to not only provide but also to try to make their future a little bit better and uh, uh, uh a trigger warning to our feminists that may be listening <laughs> pope leo also prefers that women work at home for for many reasons you know and, and i know today uh in our society as a whole women working at home is viewed as a negative thing you know like oh what are you going to do all day well i mean if you're if you're raising your children and and you're doing the things that you're supposed to be doing your day is actually quite busier than a man's at work right i heard a oh no doubt i heard no doubt. i heard a lesson years ago it, it, now this was in my protestant parish but it's always stuck with me this uh this guy got up and he was giving a a sermon and he said you know one of the reason he felt like that women started really pushing for um i mean there was many reasons but one one reason he felt like they were pushing to to get out in the in the uh you know the secular world to work was because the way men were treating them he said you know as men we go out there we work and and a lot of times most of us are like you got to put up with all this immoral activity, vulgar language, arguments with people, fighting, stress, you know, all these things that you don't want to deal with, right? And, and he right. said, how bad did we treat and appreciate our women that we caused them to want to go out into this world? So he kind of put the onus on, uh, uh, in part on men for the way that we viewed women in housework and rearing children and, you know... Uh, all, all the things that go along with that. So, you know, Pope Pope Leo does in this encyclical encyclical does prefer women to work at home because, especially with children, name a more important job than rearing God fearing children who are going to carry on, who are going to be soldiers for the kingdom of Christ in the future. Name a more important job. I can't, and um, it's important though to to understand that what when this encyclical was written. Taking care of a house is literally a, a dawn to dusk type job because there are no washing machines, there are no dishwashers, there are no vacuum cleaners. If you don't do it by hand, it don't get done. It don't. And so literally uh, uh, cleaning, cooking, and, and keeping a house was 
in and of itself a full-time job. The other thing to think to, to remember about this is this is written at a time in which there is no internet, there are no um, work from home, there are no Zoom meetings <laughs> or anything like that. The, the environments that women were working in when they would work in the same factory floors as men were incredibly dangerous, not just occupational hazard wise, but assaults were, were rampant in, in these, um, these factories at the turn of the century. Because like I said, this is a brand new mode of production that has more or less hit the global scene and there aren't a lot of safeguards in place to protect people, um, you know, uh, in these places. And a lot of the people, like I said, this is unskilled labor for the very first time that is being hired in mass. And some of these folks are pretty, you know, uh, it's a motley crew sometimes running on, running around on these factory floors and the, the places that, uh, where women would work with these men in these places, I mean, assaults were just rampant. It was a big problem. And so what the Pope is actually saying is, here is not that women shouldn't work in the factories because they're not as good as the men, but because it's incredibly dangerous, right? This is 1891. People get killed on factory floors all the time in 1891. Doesn't happen that often now, and it still happens every once in a while, but um, not like it did back then. So th this is a very different time than it is today. Well, so yeah, and I think you know I, I don't necessarily disagree with that uh, because you know you're right on that, but you know he also I, I think there like I mentioned earlier there's a bigger point in this because even today with all the technological advances we have in a home it's still quite a busy <laughs> busy job for a woman. It is, and and you know it is one of the reasons that Pope Leo was against socialism because he didn't want the state to replace the right and duties of families and parents and, and, and those type issues. If you, I, I, I hate to say it, but I mean, if you have both parents working most, uh, in most cases, you're, you're sending those schools to a state, you know, or you're sending those kids to a state school and you know, you're gone all day. Um, and, and the state has a lot of influence over your kid. And as you can see what's going on in the school districts right now, you don't want that kind of influence. And I, and, and that's not to say I don't understand that there are some parents that, you know, that's just the reality, you know, that, that's what they have to do to provide. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing, you know, making sure that they're able to provide. But what I am criticizing and what I've always criticized is this idea that both parents have to work because it's not the case in many cases if you're willing to sacrifice bigger homes, cars, vacations, all these extra goods in favor of your children. Because, you know, we've become a very materialistic society in the sense that I've, oh, yeah. I've got to provide, i got to have all these different things for my kids. Well, no, you don't, because the most important thing your kids need are not these material things. And, and you know, Pope Leo is, is talking about the importance of the family in this, the importance of, of, of mothers in the sense that, you know, he doesn't want them to go to go work because, again, there's not a more important job in the world. And I think if people made the necessary sacrifices in a lot of cases, they could. And I've, I've had this discussion with people and they're like, oh, well, you, you just have that luxury. Well, 
you know, when me and my wife started having children, I was making, you know, <laughs> let, you know, like 40, what was it? 45,000 a year. We had one vehicle. We started out in an apartment and it's, it's like, I could, you know, my wife could have gone to work because for one, I, we also had family members like my, like my grandmother and my mother-in-law who would have watched the kids. So we wouldn't have necessarily had to send them to a state school or pay for a daycare or whatever the case may be. But uh, again, it comes down to, we wanted, it was important for us, for her to be at home and, and everything that, go, you know, that goes with that. So I've been blessed to the situation I'm in today through the years. But again, even if we hadn't, we would do everything in our power to adhere to what Pope Leo talks about in here about the, you know, women working at home. Because again, I, I know I kind of went off on a tangent here, but um, I think it's very important that mothers, fathers, parents, and the family have more influence over the kid than the state. You know, it's, it's a, it, it's a, in our in our modern society, we sort of take it for granted that um, we are ultimately every parent is ultimately responsible for the intellectual and most importantly religious and moral formation of their children. That's on you. You brought a soul into existence, and you are responsible for that. Um, and we sort of take it well. You know, he'll learn it at school. Well, he'll he'll learn it on TV. Well, I don't think that's who you really want teaching your kids. I mean, we're, we're finding out about all the, the, the things that go on in Hollywood with the Harvey Weinsteins and, and, and everything. Are, are these really the people that you want forming your, your children's intellectual and moral formation? I, I doubt it. And you really ought to think twice about that. Now, um, I think what the Pope is getting to here in this is that the way in which we ensure that women are able to be at home to raise kids and to tend the house is by making sure that when men go to work, they can earn a livable wage. Right. Um, and, and to a large extent, in many cases, that has not happened. And, you know, women are, are you, you're forced in a situation where you have to have men and women, uh, both mom and dad, in the workforce. Now, uh, with the advent of the internet and things like that, a lot of women can work from home and they can, they can do both. But um, I'm here to tell you that um, in, in every situation in which the woman works, she has to come home and then do the housework. Because if you think yeah. the man is going to do it, uh, I, 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 I love my fellow men. I really do. But we just have a different standard of cleanliness than the women do. I can, I can clean, quote unquote, clean the house and my wife will come home and she'll go, oh, bless your heart. You, 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 you did, yeah, yeah, had such a good try. I, I got a feeling she <laughs> says bless your heart on more than just that though. Yeah, more than just that. Uh, but um, you brought up something that I do want to talk because we were talking about socialism and how a lot of people believe that socialism might be more Christian than capitalism, and so we need to promote that. This encyclical is actually quite clear. Socialism is not Catholic. It is not. It is antithetical to Catholic social teaching. There is a paragraph, um, number thirty-eight of Rerum Novarum, which states uh, quite quite clearly. 
Um, let me see here. I want to see where I've got this because uh, there are not a few who are imbued with evil principles and eager for revolutionary change, whose main purpose is to stir up disorder and incite their fellows to acts of violence. The authority of the law should intervene to put restraint upon such firebrands to save the working classes from being led astray by their maneuvers and protect lawful owners from spoilation. So there's a lot of talk in our society today about we got to dismantle the system. The system is racist. The system is corrupt. And we have to dismantle policing. We have to dismantle the system. And my question is always, okay, and what are you going to replace it with? They never have an answer to that. And the, one of the things that I know just from being a traditionalist Catholic is it's a lot easier to tear things up than it is to build them back again once you've wrecked them. So when you, when you do things like, you know, and it's, and of course you want to have uh, systems in place where police are held accountable when they act beyond their legitimate authority or when they, they use an unjust level of force. Absolutely. But what I've noticed is whenever we dismantle the system and, and dismantle the patriarchy, we tend to replace it with new patriarchies. Only the new patriarchy doesn't have all the safeguards built into it that the old one had because we developed it over hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. And the new patriarchy is worse than anything anybody could have imagined. And it never fails to be like that. You know, I go back to the Tower of Babel that I constantly use that example. Socialism is the Tower of Babel. It is this idea that we can build a world better than the one God made. And we can run it better than he runs it too. Because he's unjust and we are fair. And we believe in fairness. And, and every time that is tried, without fail, they produce the most unjust, barbarous regimes that have ever had the misfortune to grace God's green earth. It never fails. Right. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is actually, and, and again, in number 46 of Ram Navarum, we have seen that this great labor question cannot be solved, save by assuming as a principle that private ownership must be held sacred and inviolable. The law, therefore, should favor ownership and its policy should be to induce as many as possible of the people to become owners. So, yeah, socialism is, uh, I can't believe, you know, it's kind of hard we have to say this in today's day and age, but socialism is not the answer. Well, let me, let me add another one to you here. If you look at paragraph 15, it, it says, Hence, it is clear that the main tenet of socialism, community of goods, must be utterly rejected, since it only injures those whom it would mean or sorry, those whom it would seem meant to benefit is directly contrary to the natural rights of mankind and would introduce confusion and disorder in the Commonwealth. Hmm. So, I mean, that kind of puts a stamp on all these American magazine and, you know, NCR and all that that are advocating for these socialistic policies. And again, as I said in the beginning, I have no qualms uh, uh, saying that as individuals, we are, you know, obligated, at least in, in a sense, as a Christian to help the poor, to help those when they're in need. Um, 
and you know we're always lamb but you know us, us that think like that are lamb blasted as not caring or not following the teachings of jesus and all that but like i said in the beginning no we just disagree on how that should be achieved i believe it should be through individual efforts through charity so on and so forth you believe uh, on the other side those that want to advocate for these socialistic programs believe that it should be forced at the end of a barrel of a gun and people say oh well that's just just being dramatic no it's not because don't don't pay your taxes don't you know that that are funding all these because our taxes are constantly going up and see what happens inflate you know all, all these taxes and this printing of money calls as we're seeing now inflation to go up and it's it's hurting the working class it's not and as it said in paragraph 15 here it's not helping those who are who they're trying to quote unquote help yeah and there's and there's kind of a duplicitous attitude when you talk to these quote unquote democratic socialists um who will tell you no 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 we're we're, we're not advocating for bolshevism we're, we're not communists what we want is more along the lines of what um, what Norway or Sweden has. Well, okay, but Norway and Sweden, by the way, have no corporate income tax. Their their corporations pay no taxes. Mm -hmm. So is so is that what you're talking about? Well, no, that's not really what we're talking about. Okay, so. Um, <sighs> Here's the here's here's here what I see is the biggest problem with socialism, and and how it's incompatible with Catholicism. Um, it fundamentally denies the reason why the world is unjust. Why is why why do people get exploited and uh, are taken advantage of and 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 stolen from and abused? Well, the socialists will say, well, capitalism, the institution of capitalism. Uh, rewards that behavior and so that's the reason these things happen and if we didn't have capitalism where we could reimagine uh, these institutions then these things wouldn't exist but here's the problem these things exist because of original sin these things exist because of concupiscence of the flesh and there is no institution you can change that will fundamentally rid these things from our society it just will never happen. The only thing you can do if you want to rid the world of things like exploitation, racism, um, uh, abuse, uh, abuse of power, things like this, is to transform yourself and conform your will closer to Christ. It's got to be at an individual level. And outside of that, because this world is, the, the world is the world, and you cannot, um, you yourself will never make the Tower of Babel into the city of God. It just, it, it's never going to happen. If you, could if you could do that, we would have done it already. So uh, the socialists never seem, the socialist Christians, by the way, never seem to have an answer for what do we do with the concept of sin? And... Is it really true that by changing the institutions of society, we will eliminate certain sins? There was something that was talked about um, in the last, you know, couple of years, where um, we have to we have to eradicate racism. And I went, well, you can you can pass laws that will 
force consequences on people who act in a racist behavior or discriminate against somebody for jobs or things like that. Eliminating racism. How are you going to do that? Because that's a sin. And if you can just eliminate it because, you know, you're so awesome, why in the world did Jesus come down from heaven, live here on earth with us, was crucified, died, buried, and rose again from the dead? Why did he do all that? All we were waiting on was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez <laughs> to fix everything for us. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. And we need to, and, and, not, and not to forget all of the misery and all of the, the horrific crimes against humanity that have been perpetrated in the name of, quote unquote, building a better world. And if you think I'm kidding, look at the 20th century. You know, you call it a holocaust. You know, you know what Hitler called it? A solution. Yeah, he's solving a problem for you. Isn't he great? You see, I know you think that what we're doing is barbarous, but but just wait and see what the world will be like once I, once I create it in, in the way that I want it. You'll you'll thank me. The later. ends justify the means. The ends justify the means, but that glorious day of uh, of utopia never comes. Never will until. And all the 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 heartache and the dead bodies that are left in the wake of those who were going to do the impossible. Uh, we never seem to quite know what to do about that. I, I would be very leery of anybody who um, says they're going to eradicate racism. <laughs> no, well, you won't. Well, and, and, and I think I can safely speak for you here when, when I say that neither one of us have our, our heads buried in the sand when it comes to capitalism. We know that capitalism has its flaws, like you were saying, and and we're not we're not ignorant of those and you know i i believe that we would both and and do advocate for the reform and the abuses that happen and the punishment in some instances when, when those happen however as you were saying earlier what system gives you the best opportunity to align yourself or orient yourself towards god with freedom and liberty and private property to better yourself and your family. Capitalism mm. does that. When, you, when you're in a socialistic state, which typically become atheistic, it, it is so much harder to obey the commands of God to orient yourself towards the, the eternal because the state then starts acting as the, the all-seeing, all-knowledgeable, omnipresent entity. And, and, and hence, again, all the major communist, socialistic uh, governments in the 20th century were murderous, atheistic governments. And it's just a, it's, it's just a natural course that it will take. I, I don't care if you, how many times I hear it was never tried right or they messed up here or that. It always ends up going that way ultimately. Now, let me, let me take, let me, uh, take the opposite position here. Well, it's not really the opposite position. Here's what I want to say. Um, we're now in a place, I think, where the, the atheism of, of socialism, the atheism that we typically associate with communism and socialism and these things, um, we're now in a place in which the global market economy is 
hostile to the religious idea and the religious sense. And it, it sort of touts itself as God and believes it's it. We live in a place in which this capitalist economy we all live in is manifesting these horrible things that we commonly associate with Bolshevism and socialism. And now we're seeing it manifest itself in the capitalist arena. Why? Because, and as Rerum Navarum will stipulate, all of these horrible things that will guaranteed happen under socialism can happen under capitalism too. If we do not approach um, this from the right way, and the right way is to understand that our moral sense, our religious sense, our, um, uh, our moral and, and religious formation must come from the church. It must be rooted in the, tra- in the apostolic tradition of the church and not just in whatever the market is doing because markets change all the time. And I think we're in this place now in the United States where uh, we're, in this, we're in this place where people look at the free market itself as kind of their religion um, and I, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I, that's what I kind of see. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I can see it because again, what we we're talking about earlier about being a materialistic society, we've, we've gone to a mindset of, of, uh, you know, what can we get? What do I need to achieve it at the expense of my family, my, my society, you know, my community, so I mean, I mean, I I can see it in a sense, um, you know, the argument you're making uh, there. But uh, again, it goes back to what's the best way out of that, as far as a a secular economic system. It sure as heck ain't changing the capitalism, because just for argument's sake, I I won't get into the the you know corporate taxes and so on and so forth. If you look at so so you know the Scandinavian countries are typically what many of the uh, democratic socialists like uh, uh, Bernie Sanders will, you know, tout as, oh, look how great they're doing. Okay. F- just to say for argument's sake that they're this great socialistic society that he's deemed them to be. How is religion in those countries right now? It's particularly Christianity and Catholicism. Hmm, it ain't, I don't know. It ain't good. The numbers are... <laughs> the, is the answer to that question. The numbers are not good. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that... Uh, uh, by any stretch that they're all of a sudden a murderous country, but I don't, you don't have to be a murderous regime, regime and thug in order to create an atheistic society, you know? Um, well, yeah. And so, so I think what, what I was kind of getting at, and I think it is what you're talking about too, is, um, there, the, what Ram Navarum states is that there is no economic system that will do this for you. So in other yeah. words, yeah, we condemn socialism. Does that mean that as long as you have a market-based economy, you'll have freedom and, uh, and virtue and all these things? No. Um, and far be it from me to, to quote a Freemason on this podcast, but I'm going to. Um, George Washington, in his farewell address, had this uh, this idea that uh, our religion that that we should always be a religious nation. 
He said, um, observe good faith and justice toward all nations, cultivate peace and harmony with all, religion and morality enjoin this conduct. And could it be that good policy does not equally enjoin it? It will be worthy of a free, just, and at no distant period, a great nation to give to mankind the magnanimous and true novel example of a people always guided by an exalted justice and benevolence. So this idea that, well, uh, we need to be a totally secularized society. Religion should have no place in the public sphere. Religion should just be a private thing that you do on your own and you should never ever bring it out in public. That is not what the founders of, of this country had uh, in mind when they established uh, the United States of America. It certainly isn't what Rerum Navarum or Catholic social teaching would say is going to lead to a particularly just or fair society. And I think that what, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing um, um, a belief that religiosity, religion is kind of a bad thing. It's... Religious people are silly at best and dangerously superstitious at worst. And so uh, they're to be ridiculed, discounted, made fun of, whatever. But look at the society that that's produced. It has not gone well. Now, we're freer than the people in the socialist countries for now. But um, I, I think the, the, the values that our society holds... I mean, we're not we're now not even sure that it's okay to have things like police departments and thing things that which uh, uh, literally 10 years ago none of us questioned because you can't build a society without you know some type of law enforcement apparatus uh to enforce laws when those of us who don't won't. But now we're not sure. And we're not sure if a boy is really a boy and a girl is really a girl. And the rules change every day. You can't build a civilization like this. This is radicalized market economy, you know, stuff going on here. And if, if, we do, if we're not rooted in something more eternal than that, I, I, I fear greatly where this all leads in the end. Well, and I've always said this um, to our one listener in Italy and our one listener in the Philippines and, you know, all our listeners that are not in the United States. There seems to be this attitude, at least particular in the United States, since since that's where, where we live, that all these all these things we see in other countries and, you know, even other even other parts of Europe and stuff in Christendom that have had capitalistic society and are, are, are in many ways changing the way either uh, severely perverting the system or trying to transform it and uproot it, right? Like you were talking about earlier. But anyway, mm -hmm. here in the United States, we have this idea that we're the United States, you know, we're different. It won't happen here. Well, I hate to tell you, the United States is not immune from, from history or to history. And if we don't, if we don't recognize the dangers of what has happened in history, and more importantly, uh, recognize the teachings of the Holy Catholic Church on these subjects. We're, we have a long road ahead of us. I like to look at um, the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s versus the quote-unquote anti-racist movement today. 
it's in the 1950s and 60s, the reason why people were so, um, uh, were promoting the civil rights movement is because, uh, you know, blacks in the American South were treated horribly and they had, they were second class citizens, you know, de facto. And we have this idea that you just shouldn't treat people like that. You should not, that's unjust, that's unfair. Well, fast forward 50 years later, and the, and the, the beef now is, well, it's not that you shouldn't treat people like that, you're just treating the wrong people like that. So we need to treat the white people like that instead of them treating us like that. It's like, no. You shouldn't treat anybody like that. The, the idea that every human person has inherent dignity, we, we've abandoned that. Yeah. And now it's about what can I get away with right now? And that's why we can't, I don't know that we can really have peaceful demonstrations anymore. And by the way, this is both left and right, by the way. They always seem to deteriorate into a riot. Why? Because people nowadays just, we do not have the moral sense that it's, I don't care what kind of cause you're advocating for, it's wrong to burn down someone's business. That, that's just objectively wrong to do that. And it's wrong to, you know, when you lose a presidential election, or even if, even if the election was stolen, you don't storm the Capitol building and wreck the place. But we don't we don't have that anymore in our society. Everything now is we go from uh, you know if you if you look cross-eyed at somebody, guns get pulled out, and and you know we're we're seeing all the time in the news uh, footage of people just walking up to random strangers and decking them right in the head as hard as they can. And this all happened in a capitalist country. So it goes to show that um, if we don't start getting back to our, our moral formation, which is rooted in the apostolic tradition of the church, which is older than capitalism and socialism, we are going to produce a society that is every bit as horrible as the socialist ones. And I, I just think that um, this experiment where we've rid religion uh, and it, where we've gotten rid of religion in our public sphere has not yielded very good results. Well, I would I would make the argument that it's not even necessarily a battle today anymore. It seems like against capitalism or socialism or or whatever the case, an economic system. It's actually a battle against Western civilization. And you know, Thomas E. Woods, who who is a Catholic actually wrote a book, How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization. So all these international law, social justice, you know, the, the dignity of people and all that came from the Catholic Church. So, you know, the hatred for the Catholic Church, I believe, leads into the hatred and battle against Western civilization and vice versa. And um, because you see that today, you know, we're hearing all the time from, from younger people about, how much they hate Western civilization, how horrible it is, and so on and so forth. So, it, it, you know, the more you think about it, the more it's not even a battle against an economic system. It's a battle against a civilization. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right about that. And, and um, no, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. No, no, I, I just wanted to, you know, add that 
Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> You got you catching your breath over there? <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um, no problem. So, going back to to another reason, though, getting back on the economic system, but 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 I do think there is a bigger picture here, and and it's a battle for Western civilization, and that's why, again, that's why the Catholic Church and Western civilization are so closely knitted together, and why the hatred seems to be, you know, you hate one, you hate the other automatically, you know. Um, it, it seems like, but anyway, uh, Car- well, and I, I, I often, I often laugh at that because the, the, the same people who are advocates of, of, of socialism and communism are, are always talking about the, 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 how Western civilization is, um, is, you know, needs to be done away with. Where do you think socialism comes from? Marx was a German. That's true. He wasn't, uh, you know, Marx, Marx is very much a product of the Enlightenment and this idea. I mean, for example, why is it, why is it true that it's better to be fair to everyone? Where did, where, do you think the ancient Egyptians believed in that? That, that equality was something to be strived after? Or do you think the, the, um, you know, the well, the ad- ancient civilizations that inca- that inhabited places like China and Japan. You think they believed that equality was something well, to be sought after? I was going to say that even here in the Americas, the Aztecs didn't believe that because they were they were sacrificing other people. So you know the the very fact if you are if you claim that the reason we need to do all this is for greater equality, if you hold equality of of persons as a value, you that comes from the Western tradition. And yeah, it does come from the Catholic Church. I would contend that the Catholic Church's teaching on the incarnation gives to Western Europe and the societies that flow out of that a certain sense about the dignity of the individual person. Um, And we see that in in our own Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they're endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. Now, that's a political document. But there's a theology behind that, that uh, your dignity comes from the the fact that Christ incarnated himself to become a human. He elevated human dignity to above even the angels. Okay, because the all all the angels, uh, you know, that are out there, they don't none of them share a nature with one of the persons of the Trinity. We're the only creatures in existence that have that. So that means that, um, you know, like we talked, I think, in an earlier episode, when a, when a dog bites another dog or, you know, uh, kills another animal, we don't put the dog on trial for murder. It's, I mean, you know, we just don't do that. It's not seen as any kind of, but when a human being does that to another human being, we're going to hold him accountable for his actions because he is a moral agent by virtue of Christ's incarnation. So there is a theology behind that for sure, I think. Well, um, I kind of got sidetracked there earlier because I'm such a scatterbrain. But but I was saying, you know, another reason I think that the Catholic Church condemns socialism is because, you know, uh, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, um, I know he criticized uh, libertarian theology because... It, because he, he viewed it as a form of Marxism, which which uh, pushes for um, 
class warfare, class struggle. And, you know, it, it seems like that that when you have socialism or you're advocating for, it's always a us against them class struggle, which is never a good thing. Um, because, again, when, when it's an us versus them mentality, a class warfare, class struggle, then people start getting into... Uh, you know, that person isn't as good as me. You start taking away the dignity of the opposite side. And, and again, that's what we see in this in this country today in our our um, class warfares and social warfares is it seems like both sides are uh, many times not not viewing the other person as a dignified person. And, and that's that's a reason you can't really have open, honest debates anymore with anybody. That's why you're always shouted down. That's why you're always uh, blacklisted or, you know, uh, demon being canceled or canceled. Yeah. yeah, Made out to be some evil demon is because nobody. It it seems like nobody really has the proper respect for the for the person, even though they may hold an opposite viewpoint. I mean, again, you can't. You can't have rational discussions in many cases today anymore. Well, yeah, because they're they're part of that group over there. Exactly. That that that, that group does the oppressing. They're a member of that group, so really, it, nothing about them on an individual level particularly matters. And the by the way, you don't have to run into error just to talk about class struggles. Um, what happened in the 1930s and 40s in Germany was a perfect example of how you can also do this about race. Yeah. And so the idea that, well, it's, it's, it's our group against their group. And it doesn't matter if he, if this particular Jew has never done anything against the German people or plotted against Germany or anything like that. He's part of the group that does that. So we're going to punish them collectively for that. You, I mean, go back and look at the history of the 20th century. This is something that... Um, well, it goes even further than that sometimes. It's like... It, it, if you don't even pick sides, either side will all of a sudden put you in the other camp because you're not vocally or or physically on their side. You know, I mean, it right it is. The, and we're talking about the Catholic Church condemning socialism, and and I dare anybody to to say the church doesn't. You know, would think them on the podcast to discuss it with us <laughs> if they believe otherwise. But I don't know if you know you because. Uh, you're you're pretty caught up on all these things, but in libertarian theology, didn't a Catholic priest come up with the idea of libertarian theology, which was you talking about? You talking about liberation theology? What am I saying? Libertarian theology. Oh yeah, liberation which... theology. What? Yeah, libertarian <laughs> theology. I don't is different. I don't know what libertarian theology <laughs> is. But... Sorry. <laughs> uh, I don't know if our listeners have heard this before, but let me give a disclaimer again. I don't speak English very well. Um, I am not the brain trust and, uh, what, what else, what else did we say? We're not professional theologians. We're definitely not <laughs> professional theologians. But, that's for sure. Yeah. Liberation theology. There you go. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, liberation theology was a movement that took place that it, it, it sort of formulates around the 1960s. It gains its crescendo in the middle of the 1980s, primarily in Latin America, the idea behind liberation theology is that the the poor in Latin America lived in dire, abject poverty, uh, bone-crushing, inhumane poverty. The type of poverty that it's a sin to let people live like that, right? Um, and 
so this idea was formulated that there's there's something in Marxism that we can apply to the Christian religion in order to bring the poor out of their misery. Um, and so we will adopt this idea that, that the classes struggle and that we have a duty to the poor and that, you know, that, that Jesus, because he wants us to be just to the poor, would advocate for uh, a Marxian type of analysis as to their situation. Um, here's the problem. The, the reason for all the abject poverty in Latin America is there ain't a Latin American country that isn't primarily a socialist type country. Uh, Mexico, when you think of Mexico, you think, well, there are number one trade partners in North America. They can't be a communist country and they're not communist. But look at their constitution. All the property in Mexico is owned by the state. The re religion, all the, all the, uh, the church property is owned by the state. All the methods of communication, the media, the radio stations are owned by the state. You can't just start your own radio, uh, you know, radio station or television station in Mexico. Though, so you have primarily a situation in which the state owns most of the property, and that is what produces all of the abject poverty. It's not the multinational corporations. It's really not. Um, at least that's that's my theory. Now, you know, who, who knows? An economist could argue that with me. But what you'll find is that everywhere that capitalism comes to, it raises the standard of living. I mean, it's not even, without it's fail. It's not even debatable, really, if you're honest with yourself. Now, it does take, there, there's some trial and, and error type situations where, like in Western Europe at the turn of the 19th century, Capitalism has an ugly side to it that you know it can it can be exploitative and it can be uh, somewhat cruel and and things like that. Well, right. And so and we we learn how to balance the part where the government regulates the industry and the industry is free to participate in the marketplace. And and there's always going to be that balance and it's never perfect. But um, I, I I I do think that it is not the multinational corporations that cause the abject poverty in Latin America. It is entirely government owned everything that does that. And that would be my, well, the, the, my contention, but. Well, the sad reality is, is you're right about as, as societies transition into capitalism, there is some ugly growing pains. I mean, hence, you know, typically when they trans, when a society transforms into a capitalist society, they have, bad working conditions, long hours. They don't, as Pope Leo the Thirteenth speaks, they don't respect the dignity of the person. There's child labor to, to an excess and abuse. Um, I don't necessarily know the right answer for those transition periods, but, but I mean, we, we would be dishonest with ourselves if we didn't recognize that those are the realities of, of the transition. Um, but uh, going back to your liberation theology that we were talking about because i say it's yours because i said libertarian you said liberation <laughs> um yeah it says right here i looked it up so uh father gustavo gutierrez order of preacher so he's a dominican priest uh he's peruvian uh he's he's considered one of the founders of latin america liberation theology and he's actually still alive he's 93 years old and 
He says he currently holds the John Cardinal O'Hara Professorship of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. So um, it, it, it's just, since it's, I don't know why it's surprising to me because things like this happen all the time, but, you know, uh, a system or, or, or a line of thinking was promoted that, that is contrary to what the church is, is taught in the, in the sense of how to obtain the the proper justice and dignity of of people but anyway um, well you also like and and so in the 1980s this this movement crescendoed into jesuit priests starting armed militias uh to overthrow the system and to to fight you know guerrilla warfare and things like I that i did not know that oh yeah yeah this was this was a problem in latin america um because the, the principal problem that I see with liberation theology is it's not really a theology. If you, if you believe that the source of the bone crushing poverty and all the evil in the world is because I just haven't come along yet to, to, to fix it all for you. Um, that's called politics. Theology is the belief that God does those things and that, and that the only cure for the evil of the human heart is God. I remember I was in law school uh, my, my third year, and I was taking a class about uh, employment discrimination. And we were talking a lot about racism and things like that. And the professor asked a question. Do you think, when, do you think we'll ever get rid of racism? Do you think it'll ever go away? And I said, yes, I think it will go away. And she said, well, when do you think will finally be rid of racism. And I said, at the second coming. And she, well, you know, they, they, the, the <laughs> eye rolls started, right? And I said, well, you asked me a theological question, you're going to get a theological answer. There is no law you can pass that will eliminate the human heart's capacity for evil. We've been trying to figure out how to do that since Cain and Abel. So no, there's no law you can pass that will make people not be evil anymore. Right. The only cure for that is sanctifying grace, right? Frequent and worthy reception to the holy sacraments and living the life of grace. And that's it. And uh, I don't know if anybody ended up agreeing with me, but that that is the problem. You can raise up all the militias and you can, um, you know, uh, reform the government. And, you know, governments should be reformed, right? You can always do things to make governments more just or, or more accountable but the idea that you'll ever eliminate evil from the world because you're so amazing and you've got all these great ideas uh you have not studied very much history and you ought to go back and educate yourself a little bit well people always kind of look at you weird or cross you know i know from my experience when i when i mentioned look you're never going to get rid of as you're talking about here racism it's, it's always been around it's going to be around does that mean that I support racism because I believe that? No, but reality is reality. I mean, like you said, I mean, <laughs> racism is an evil, is a sin, right? You, yeah. You, you're not going to eliminate sin, and you know, until the, like you said, the second coming of Christ. Um, let me ask you uh, uh, this as well. So, <clears throat> let me explain myself, and then I'll get your take on it. Okay. And, and maybe in the encyclical he mentioned it. I was just too dumb to pick up on it. But, you know, he, <laughs> he talks about fair wages, livable. You know, I guess where this idea where livable wages 
maybe come from. I don't know. But anyway, he talks about fair wages, livable wages. Um, I, I think sometimes as a, as a society, though, we struggle with this concept because of this. We'll, we'll take our standards of fair wages and transpose it on a different country whose fair wages may be vastly different than what we have. And, mm. you know, in some instances, you know, like, well, that's a sweatshop over there or they're treating their people horrible, so on and so forth. Um, and that's not always necessarily the case because, you know, for let's say just for numbers sake, I may need to make $20 an hour, let's say for a livable wage where I live. Over there, they're paying them, let's say, $10 an hour. Well, I'm going to say, man, they're underpaying them. But in reality, they could only, their society may only require $5 for a fair livable wage. So they're actually doing better. And I bring this up because years ago, there was a story about some, I believe it was in India or Sri Lanka, anywhere, somewhere in that part of the world, where there were some girls who had had some factory jobs that were they were they were working um you know maybe the conditions needed to be better as a whole but they were working and they were they were able to bring in money for their for their families to you know help provide for them and everything well you had some what we call social justice warriors in in West, in the western world say they ain't paying them enough the the they uh, those girls are basically slaves because they were transposing their idea of what a fair wage was. And the study went on to show that they got that factory shut down. Do you know what most of those girls went into after that? What? Prostitution. In order to mm -hmm. be able to provide. Because the, the other jobs they had there outside the factory paid far less than what the factory did. Definitely was not a livable wage. And these girls, many of these young girls, and I'm talking about like mid-teens, early teens, were forced into prostitution because people in the Western world said, no, 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 that's not good. So I really think we also have to be cognizant, cognizant of the fact that what we deem as livable doesn't transfer to different parts of the world. And we need to be careful what we say, how we act, and what we do, because we could be pushing those people, especially these young kids, into worse situations than they're already than they're in now. And in many cases, there have been studies that show that these kids in these in these factories are actually doing much better than they would without the factory. So, um, and and that's not just for the kids; that's also for the adults as well. Uh, I, I know Pope Leo talks about child labor in the sense that it doesn't need to be at the expense of their formation or education, right? Um, mm -hmm. so I, I would say pushing a kid out of a factory and a, a little girl into prostitution is definitely messing with their formation. Um, so anyway, I, I was just going to see if, uh, what you thought about that, because, it, because again, you know, you hear that all the time. Oh, look over here, you know, these sweatshops, this and that, that's, are there sweatshops that where people are not treated well in certain parts of the world? Absolutely. But we also got to be careful, I think, in transposing our ideas of what is acceptable to other parts of the world as far as wages go. So um, as little, I, I actually, I, you know, we always talk about how we're not professional theologians. I know infinitely more about theology than I do about economics. So let me preface with what I'm about to say with that, okay. right? Um, I think part of the great thing about market-based systems is that 
markets tend to solve a lot of these problems better than we do as individual people because the world is an incredibly complicated place. And so when we go in, like you're talking about, and try to fix problems, we will end up creating new problems. We, we, we may fix that problem that we're focused on, but we will end up creating other ones. This is like the law of externalities or whatever. Um, but I do know that, I, I mean, yeah, there are factories in the world that pay their people atrocious wages, even by their standards. And that's why I always laugh when, you know, Nike is going to eliminate racism mm -hmm. for us. I just, I think that's hysterical considering that they're the largest employer of slaves probably in the world. Um, and, and I think a lot of this is, you know, pay attention to this hand over here so you won't notice that I'm actually one of the biggest uh, perpetrators of all this horrible stuff that goes on in the world. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I think there are different standards of living in different countries. Most of the time, um, the coming of industrial capital raises the standard of living. It raised the standard of living in this country. We were talking a lot about the Civil War on the last, uh, the last episode, but I will contend that the thing that really ended slavery in the United States was the invention of the factory. You know, people didn't keep slaves because they really hated black people and wanted to oppress them. They oppressed them for sure. But before the advent of the factory, there was no way to produce massive amounts of goods without human slavery. Human slavery had been an institution uh, up until 150 years ago everywhere in the world. And if it's true that, you know, like the socialists will tell you that capitalism uh is is designed institutionally to oppress minorities, then you would have seen a rise in slavery with the advent of industrial capitalism in the United States. But you didn't see that. You saw its total elimination. And yeah, that solves one problem. But it, you know, the industrial capital creates other problems. It has, you know, there's other things that that come about. But it you cannot argue that it raised the standard of living for black folks who worked in those factories after the Civil War. You got a wage. Was it the greatest wage in the world? Yeah, maybe not, but you had ownership of yourself. You were no longer chattel for somebody else to work, you know, 20, 20 hours a day and, and never have anything to show for it. And and things get better over time. You know, the the, the situation of the factories improves over time. And there's, we, we start striking a balance between government regulation and letting markets decide what to do. And we're always re-examining that, right? right. Um, I don't think that the Rerum Navarum says that, here's the formula for how to get it right. What Rerum Navarum says is that uh, it's important that we do try to get it right. It says that under socialism, you will never have a free and just society. Under capitalism, you might. You might. It's got, it's got all the elements there needed to create that, but it's not going to do it on its own. You, you still have to be grounded in the Christian tradition, the apostolic tradition of the Catholic Church, if you want to create a society that is morally just and right. And 
I think the evidence to that is, like I said, I go back and I look at the two different civil rights movements, the one in the 1950s and 60s and the one that's going on today. The one that's going on today is toxic. Isn't it, isn't it crazy? Somehow we've we've done a 360 to back to segregation at some places because I, I was just reading today and I've read in the past, colleges are starting to create like uh, dorms and and halls and all that for for blacks only. Right. And it's like right. it's like how have we come full circle around to this again? Somehow yeah, if- somehow these people that are advocating and proclaiming themselves as being the ultimate anti-racist end up being the, the the ones that are racist saying, "Oh, you need to be over here by yourself," you know? And it's like, dude, well, they have a they have a they have an out for that too. They've changed the word. They changed the meaning of the word, and it's like, well, okay, we can do that all day long, you know. <laughs> well, um, and, and no, I, I I completely agree. And if they if anybody thinks that separating people by their race for any re, for for any so called high and mighty reason that you've invented in your mind um, is a, is a good idea. If you believe it's important to um, villainize one race of people in order to fix all of the of the injustices of the past one need only look at the third reich to see whether or not that's a good idea because that's exactly what they did they um a lot of people don't know this when they would take uh jews to the concentration camps the very first thing they would do they they would have them you could take one suitcase with you and then as soon as you arrived at the camp, they took the suitcase away from you. Uh, they, they sorted through all your, your valuables. And then after they killed you, they'd pull the, the fillings, the silver and gold fillings out of your teeth and melt that down for the war effort. It wasn't enough that they were going to kill these people. They had to deproperty them in the, in, in the process. And you'll never guess what the reason behind that was. Well, the Jews start all the wars. They start all the wars. So, I mean, we all know that. And we're in a war now, so it's only right that they should have to pay for all this. So you you go down a really dark road when you start deciding who the good people are and who the bad people are and how we need to punish the bad people for all the crimes of history. Man, (laughs) you are walking down a dark path when you go that way. Can you guess one of the best places or best groups you can go to in order to find a place that will not separate people? Where? The traditional Latin mass. Man, I am so (laughs) glad you said that. Because I had never been to a multi-ethnic Catholic church, Roman Catholic church, until I found the traditional Latin mass. Because before that, there was, there's the Irish church, then there's the Italian church, there's an African-American church, um, especially here in the South around uh, Louisiana and never do the two mix and never. And if you're one, you don't go to the other. And uh, Regina Chaley Parish is the very first Roman Rite Catholic church I have ever been to where, I mean, you name it, we got it. We have people, we have African-Americans, we have people from Africa, we have uh, all over Latin America, Cubans, uh, Nicaraguans, Mexicans, Hondureños, uh, Salvadorians, I mean, Colombians. I mean, we, yeah, I mean, it, it's such a diverse, and it's not just 
here in Houston. I know when I've been to Phoenix and LA, it's at the fraternity parishes there. It's the same exact story. And, and, you know, yeah, I mean, if you go to many of the, the more, uh, how shall we say, ordinary Catholic parishes, um, I I don't know ordinary is the right word, but more, um, the ordinary form, the ordinary form. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess it is yeah. right. Yeah, ordinary form. Yeah, you'll see Spanish mass at this time, English mass here, depending on where it is. Even here in the in Houston, you'll have the Vietnamese mass here. This and that. I mean, again, it goes back to an early episode. One, you know, one one of the many reasons people ask us why Latin is because it unifies us. I mean, I mean, we 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 can all understand what's going on without having to have 15 different languages and uh but 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 it does you but it does you know unify and that that's why i say that and because again it's still coming up now that oh the latin mass is for white supremacist uh ultra right wing people and i'm like dude (laughs) i i always love that because the same they're like yeah traditional latin mass people are white supremacists also mass needs to be an american it needs to be an english and it's like, okay, you're the one who, who is advocating for English only in the mass, and that makes me a white supremacist. I, mean, I don't think I mean, so. It's, buddy. it's coming to the point that my my Irish side is going to be coming out where it's like, okay, you're being so stupid with this that I don't even want to debate you. Let's just box about it. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and that, yeah, that's, and that's unfortunately what it leads to because if you can't, uh, if you can't have a conversation and, and it doesn't seem like anybody is interested in that today. It's the only thing that's left is fisticuffs. Well, and I just, man, I'm and and I know you've been to some Eastern Catholic liturgies too, um, which are, which are beautiful liturgies, which I have no problem going to. Um, you know, I intend to fully go to some more in the future, but even among some of those Eastern liturgies, they're, they're still very, um, sep- you know, in some cases separated by where, the, where they're from, you know? Uh, oh yeah, for sure. Um, but, but again, that's... I mean, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be welcome at a Ukrainian exactly. Catholic mass, but or divine liturgy as they call Byzantine, it, but yeah. everybody, everybody there except for you is going to be Ukrainian. I mean, part, and that's yeah. fine. I, I, I don't have a problem with that, but, um, I just, um, but, I am, I am very concerned with the, with the direction that, quote unquote social justice has taken in our modern parlance because um it it, it seems to advocate for exactly the opposite um well it seems like the latin mass too is very good for the western world particularly because the the western world seems to be a lot more multicultural than other parts of the world too um yeah i'll go along with that so so it seems fitting that that you know the latin mass is known as the the roman you know the roman right the roman catholic um but anyway i mean just just i mean look at look at look at architecture right so so all eastern catholic churches all ukrainian catholic churches have a particular architectural style that is that is authentically the ukrainian catholic architectural style um, all Melkite churches will basically all kind of look the same and, and what have you. But in the Roman Rite, we have Gothic, we have Baroque, we have Neo-Gothic Revival. I mean, the, there is no one architectural style that is 
the the official architectural style of the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. There isn't one. There's a lot of different styles, and that goes that speaks more to that that what you would call multiculturalism that exists. Um, I think only, well, not maybe not only in the West, but I I find it primarily in the West. Yeah, yeah it happens anyway. more in the West. It seems like. Um, um, but yeah, no. But anywho, yeah. I I I think. Um, this encyclical, and of course, this will. This isn't the only text of Catholic social teaching. There will. This will sort of spawn the movement that will. Uh, there, there will be a few more encyclicals. Um, uh, Centissimus Annus from uh, John Paul II, but there's another one that I'm thinking of that I can't there, well, I, uh, quite. I have a couple pulled up here from Pi okay. Pius the Eleventh Quad Right. Quadragissimo Anno. And then you have right. uh, John the 23rd's Mater et Magistra. If I said that right. It, and there will also come out this new sort of, I don't know if you want to call it an economic theory, but have you heard of distributism, Jason? Yes, I have. I But I'll be honest with you, I'm not too much, I haven't read too much up on it, shall we say. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't know enough in, about it to talk about it uh, intelligently, except to say that uh, it is uh, primarily about, um, uh, it, it's based in the universal destination of goods. So it, 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 it values private property, but private property is not an absolute. W going along with private property comes certain responsibilities that you have to meet with that property in order to be a moral person. So uh, distributism is primarily, it favors um, shopping at small artisan craftspeople versus buying at Walmart. Not to say that if you buy at Walmart, you're not a good distributist. Like I said, I don't, I don't really know how you be a distributist, and I'm not sure this is really an economic theory per se, but it will... Uh, there's some great authors that come around um, the turn of the century and up into the 20s and 30s. Hilaire Belloc is uh, probably Name the most famous. Familiar. Yeah, yeah. Who will who will sort of talk more about this uh, distributism, and um, sounds, you know something to look into if you're if you're interested in that. Well, it sounds like, uh, and I may be way off here, but just listen to you describe it. There, it kind of reminds me. Is it similar to the broken? Uh, broken window, broken glass fallacy. You're talking about broken windows policing, or are you talking about something different? It's something different. So, so, okay. so there's this idea that in order to, like, say, stimulate money growing in the economy, if you, uh, like, like I believe Paul Krugman is guilty of this. You, you, you break a window. You, so you take that money that people have and you redirect it. So you break the window. And now you've given the window person work. Now he'll have money to spend on whatever, right? So, so you you create like a negative type ripple, right, in the economy. So saying. the fallacy is that okay. Well, what you don't see is that if you hadn't broken that window, I might have spent my money going to buy a suit. So when I buy that suit, well, the suit the, the suit maker has to buy materials from different vendors. And then, you know, so the, so the money will go on. So there's this idea in the broken uh, window theory that I have to create uh, 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 an event in order to stimulate and and send money through the economy. But the fallacy in it is 
is is the fact that okay well what you're not seeing is if you hadn't broken that window this money could have gone somewhere else and even further um yeah that's and that's that's one of the things that i like about markets is that when when things are driven by markets um they tend to not in all cases but in 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 terms of things like the economy and what kind of goods are produced and things like that, it seems to take care of itself and it takes care of it better than we can plan that kind of thing. When you start trying to plan an economy, and this is another problem with socialism, although this isn't necessarily a moral problem with socialism, I think of it more of as an economic problem with socialism, is that when you plan an economy, you know, economies are, are, are basically driven by people and people are incredibly complicated. So, you're spending all this time, uh, you know, deciding what goods should be produced and what goods shouldn't be produced. And you're wrong because there's a bunch of things you don't know. And versus what markets will do is markets will produce the goods that society feels like it needs. Uh, there's a, there's a guy who sells, um, uh, gelato. He has a gelato stand over on uh, Bingle over here in Houston. Now, if the world doesn't want gelato and it doesn't need gelato, he'll there will not be much gelato pretty soon. He'll he'll run out of business and you know he'll have to go do something else. But on the other hand, if people like gelato and that's what they want, then he will be successful. So it's sort of this instant democracy in a sense you know the the will of the people is heard instantly with their dollars so, sort of a thing and i think i think that's the good thing about markets and that's the, well, the thing that i think leo the 13th would like about markets yeah and and, um, and the thing is is that the market will always correct itself no matter what you do hence why you have all these bubbles <laughs> because people are are you know because when you redirect money in the wrong direction it tells people to spend when they should be saving. And then all of a right. sudden they're spending money. They're building, say, for instance, all these houses because that's because that's what the, you know, they're manipulating the interest rates and all that. So it's telling them, oh, this is a, the interest rates are low. It, you know, it's time to borrow and, and, and spend versus, okay, I need to be saving. You know, when it, I know that the, when interest rates the, are the, higher, you know, you're going to be saving. So you're going to be building widgets, houses, whatever it may be. When people really don't, that's not what they're asking for. That's what the, that's not what the market is asking for. So you've built all these right. and all of a sudden now you have a bubble and that bubble will burst eventually. Um, it, well, a lot of people would think that what happened in 2007, 2008 was caused by the big banks. I contend that it was actually caused by the United States government. Absolutely. I don't know if you remember, but right after 9-11, in order to stimulate what they saw as a slowing down economy because of 9-11, they, they dropped the interest rate to zero, which meant that banks could borrow money for free. Mm -hmm. And they were lending money for free. And because it's free, you could lend it to anybody, even people who couldn't pay it back. No risk. So, Banks were, uh, you know, they were giving mortgages to anybody with a pulse. And uh, under the theory that it doesn't really matter if they can pay it back because I borrowed this money for free. Like, who cares? And the people themselves were like, yeah, I mean, I, this is 0% interest, no money down on, uh, on, a, on a six bedroom house. 
Yeah, I'll take it. Why not? What are you going to do? Repossess me and ruin me? I, I, I bought it. I borrowed it for free. You basically gave me the money. Um, I remember when I, it was like 2006, my wife and I were, uh, or no, maybe it was earlier than that. It was like 2004. We moved to South Florida. And that's where we got married, actually. And uh, we, were, we moved to South Florida. We we're looking at houses. And we were in like this real blue collar neighborhood, kind of not really the ghetto, but like it, the, it was the hood, you know. And it was like the 600 square foot house and it was like $700,000. And I was like, okay, there's a bubble. Uh -huh. Because either, either Warren Buffett is going to have to want to come live in Hialeah or... Whoever owns this house is going to have to take a loss on this yeah. <laughs> if they ever want to sell it. So, um, well, when you, I'm, but again, I'm not an economist. You know, I can't tell you any of this stuff for certain. It just, it, it is true though that that the gov that the federal government uh, pressured the Federal Reserve to lower interest rates to zero. Well, so I, it's like I, I agree. And and if anybody's familiar, I align quite a bit with the Austrian School of Economics. Um, with you know Mises and all them, but um, no, but but I agree because when you take out the risk, of course a com a bank or a company that is in it to make money, if there's no risk to make lots of money, why do I need to go through the proper channels of vetting people? Because there's no risk to me, and you know it, it, it's kind of the I make the same argument for education why education is so high because you have the bank, you, or you have the government guaranteeing the banks. To loan kids today fifty hundred thousands of dollars over four years for for eighteen year olds that don't have credit, have never held a job, mm -hmm. and all that. So, of, of course the the banks are going to lend the money because they're making money off of it. And guess what? If you don't pay it, the the, the government's backed it. The government's guaranteed it, right? So yeah, so yeah. so now the universities have said, hey, these kids have free access and easy access to money. We're going to jack up our prices. What would happen if you think the government backed out and said, and, and this is across a, a wide variety of field, but we're, we're taking education. What do you think would happen if the government came out and told the banks, you know what? We're not backing you and we're not guaranteeing you no more. You're, we're not your fallback. The banks would then start doing what? They would start vetting. Okay, you want money? Well, you've got to do X, Y, and Z. It's going to be hard to get it. Okay? Because now kids can't afford a $100,000 education because the banks aren't going to lend you that type of money. So what are the universities going to be forced to do? Either go drop out, either tuition. shut down or drop tuition and not build these multi-million dollar football stadiums and aquatic centers and student centers and all that because they don't have the free access to money that they have. So it's either shut down or lower your prices. And, and I know it's an oversimplistic way, but, but in reality it speaks a lot of truth in education how why are prices so high in education today because the government is involved i know so many people who got college degrees who wish they would have learned how to weld no I, I'm, I mean, I'm one of them i'm one i wish if i could go back right now i would not go to college and i would go pick up a trade as an electrician now, I had to go to college because you, you can't go to law school until you go to college. So if what you want to do yes. is be a lawyer or a doctor, then, you know, college makes a lot of sense. Yes. I don't, you know, I, I'll tell you what my dad told me. Um, when, I, when I left for Loyola, he said, um, learn a lot, have a good time, make lots of friends. And if your degree has the word studies at the end of it, <laughs> you screwed up. Yeah. 
you screwed up. And of course, what did I get? A Bachelor of Arts in Religious Studies and Theology. Well, but, um... well I'm a scientist. I'm a scientist. <laughs> I, I, I'm a political scientist. So I might be. Okay, there you I, go. I might be there even more worthless than that. But you know, that's the thing is, yes, go to college if you need, if what you want to do requires a college education. But guess what? We as a society have this idea where we, look, at least in the United States, where we look down on trade schools and those that don't go to college. Like me, I went to college because I thought that's what was expected. Now, I was the first one in my family to graduate from college. So I can kind of understand where my parents and grandparents came from, right? Because they grew up in a time where a college degree actually meant something. And, yeah. um, and now bachelor's degrees are just like high school diplomas. Um, you know, because you can get it for just about anything now. Um, but me growing up, or me growing up, me raising my kids as they grow up, no, my, my speech will be to my kids. If you want to go to college, uh, go to college, but make sure you're going for something that is act that college is actually needed for. Like you were saying, law school, maybe accounting, a CPA, maybe a doctor or whatever, you know, it is. But don't go to college and do like I did and get a political science degree. Well, I mean, what good did that do me? I mean, okay, show that I can learn. Okay, so what? Um but my dad was my dad was real big on you have to have it you have to have a college degree you just have to have one yeah. um, and and if you don't have one your life isn't going to amount to squat and and all this that and the other thing and if you want to go do something else after that's fine but you have to get a college degree uh, okay how's that going to help me be a welder how is that going to help me be an electrician but it, it, but, it, but, it, but again like i said i mean you can't really necessarily blame that generation or the older generation because I mean, I mean, how old is your dad? I mean, he's probably what in his he's 60s, in his seventies. Yeah. yeah, he's in his seventies. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, he grew up in a time where it meant something vastly different than it does today. Yeah, I think that's true. And and, um, and, and, and I know, like you know, with my dad, I don't know if it was the same with yours. You know, they my, my dad works on the oil rigs offshore and stuff. They don't necessarily want you gone all the time. They don't want you, you know, doing the manual labor because you know, like a lot of us with our kids, we want to see the best for them and you know my dad didn't necessarily view his job what he was doing was the best for his kids so and education was the way out of that now it would have been if i'd have done it for the right thing <laughs> but but like i said for my kids especially my sons i'm like look if you learn a trade that will always be there you can make good money you can start your own business you can provide for your family you can do whatever but if but you know if you want to be something that requires a college, go to college. But don't go to college because you think that's what I expected you to do after you graduate high school, you know? You know what I just found in Rerum Navarum? What's that? In paragraph paragraph 18, going back to what we were talking about, uh, you know, be, be careful about people who are going to solve all your problems <laughs> because the, the real problem in the world is sin. Uh, number 18 of Ram Navarm says in like manner, the other pains and hardships of life will have no end or cessation on earth for the consequences of sin are bitter and hard to bear. And they must accompany man so long as life lasts to suffer and to endure. Therefore is the lot of humanity. Let them strive as they may. No strength and no artifice will ever succeed in banishing from human life, the ills and troubles, which beset it. If any there are who pretend differently, who hold out to a hard-pressed people the boon of freedom from pain and trouble, an undisturbed repose and constant enjoyment, they delude the people and impose upon them and their lying promises will only 
one day bring forth evils worse than the present. Nothing is more useful than to look upon the world as it really is, and at the same time to seek elsewhere, as we have said, for the solace to its troubles. <laughs> Boom. Yep. <laughs> Boom. There you go. Ram Navarum's a great encyclical. If uh, if you've never if you've never delved into it, you should read it in its historical context, however, because it is, it is 1891 that he's writing this. And some of this stuff you may think, well, that's not my experience of capitalism. It, some of it may not be. Um, you, Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848. So this comes about, you know, 50 years after that. Um, so the world has had a little bit of time to read Marx and um, uh, you know, understand it a little bit. The Bolshevik Revolution obviously hasn't happened yet, so we haven't we haven't seen uh, at the time of the writing of this encyclical. We have not seen the uh, the horrors of communism, mm -hmm. so it's still this debated topic. Well, maybe it maybe it is, and then maybe it isn't. So um, the Pope takes the, the the mentality that that it is not what it said, what it claims to be. Um, but at the time of the writing of this encyclical, that's theoretical. Right. Well, what you what, what you've said is just amazing. The knowledge that the church has, you know, just by just by the divine revelation and natural law that God has given it. And, and, and you know, it, it goes to speak to this this idea of the development of doctrine as we as we start to understand more, you know, the the divine revelation, you know, was all given, you know, with the death of the um or the deposit of faith was given with the death of the last apostle, right? But our understanding right. of that evolves through time. And, and it's sometimes it's just amazing to see how the church is ahead of its time in situations like this based on that deposit of faith that was given, you know, back in yeah, the first they didn't, century. They didn't have capitalism. They yeah. didn't have capitalism in, in first century Palestine, and, nor did they have socialism. What they did have was an understanding of what is the cause of suffering and evil in the world and so we we take that that's what we get from christ we we get an understanding as to uh, as to sin um god the devil all of these things that that are part of divine revelation and the modern world wants to challenge all that but here's the problem the modern world is always wrong i mean it, <laughs> from from you know in 1848 Karl Marx thought he had it figured out and and all this stuff about sin and evil and all that that's superstition meant to keep down the working classes but now we're on to them so we're going to rise above all that stuff they never do right they always produce like like it says here uh, a reality that's worse than the present and so why don't we just go back? Maybe our ancient ancestors weren't as stupid as we assumed them to be. No, no. Is, is my point. Yeah, and I think we have that that idea sometimes. But it, it just speaks, like I said earlier, to the the idea, idea of the development of doctrine, understanding of, of the deposit of faith, because I know that goes against many of our Protestant, you know, uh, Protestants on the other side, because they don't necessarily believe in the development of doctrine or the... You, you know, the the understanding, a better understanding as time goes on. You know, of course, I, I say all that, the development within the magisterium of the Catholic Church. Um, but no, it's just, it, it just stuff like that just amazes me sometimes when you just sit and think about it, about how, how faith delivered 2,000 years ago is still speaking to us today in our current mm. situations. 
Mm. And I, I and I keep going back to it because it's the only thing that explains the world in a way that makes sense to me. Because you know the idea that um, uh, you know if I was going to listen, say if I was if I was a German in the 30s and 40s, the idea that well the Jews are really the reason why there's bad things in the world, you know that is just a a, a poor explanation for for anything. It doesn't. It doesn't hold any, it doesn't help you explain anything about the world. And that's because it's an error. The Jews are not uniquely responsible and any more or less than anybody else is for, for the reason why the world is bad. Well, if you listen to Karl Marx, well, the reason why injustice happens is because of a, a capitalism as an institution. And so if you get rid of that, you get rid of injustice. Well, that's a pretty poor it's explanation as well. Mind. It's very narrow-minded, too. The only explanation, you know, and, and nowadays we're flirting with this idea of um, the reason why the world is bad is because of white males. <laughs> okay. All so that's a pretty simplistic and it doesn't expect it leaves out huge. There's big holes in well, that. Now we're, For example, now we're getting there though is how do you define a white male? Well, yeah, but <laughs> you know, I, no, I'm just saying the the redefinitions I mean, I guess, that, my, that we have of what is male, what is female, and all that. And, and honestly, it just comes down to that person does that doesn't agree with me. I got a I got a better explanation for the world and and this is a definition that's hard to argue with. The line between good and evil as Alexander Solzhenitsyn points out cuts right down the center of every human heart. Every human being is capable of both both wonderful of both great sanctity and horrible evil. And given the right set of circumstances and a and a poorly formed conscience uh you could be a gas chamber attendant now i know a lot of people think well if i was if i lived back in germany in the 30s that wouldn't have been me well the germans who lived in the 30s and 40s are really not all that different from you they they have two arms two you know they have a, a central nervous system a brain they're not it's not it doesn't make sense to me that the entire nation were a bunch of psychopaths right they were just normal people just like you are. And yet they became gas station attendants. Maybe you ought to look at that a little bit before you go pointing your fingers at all the quote unquote bad people out there and look in the mirror and wonder, am I, am I really one of the good people all the time? Cause I think what you'll find is the answer is no, you're not. And the only way that you can the only thing that's going to keep you from being that gas chamber attendant or that uh, firing squad, uh, you know, attendee or whatever is sanctifying grace, right? It, it's the only thing that's going to make you one of the good people. Um, because history has shown that this idea that you'll just know when the time comes, what the right thing to do is, um, you better hope so because doesn't you know well let me when you mentioned uh about you know coming down splitting down the heart it reminded me of the the book of james um sorry martin luther um in chapter three you know it's talking about the tongue in particular here about how about how um the tongue is a very is small but very powerful right 
but you know the things we say come proceed from our heart right and what you were saying uh about the heart you know it says you know talking about our tongue with it we bless our lord and father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of god so you know with our tongue or, or you know from our mouth proceeds what is in our heart and <laughs> You know, it just kind of reminded me of that line between the heart. You know, it's a battle between good and evil constantly. And um, anyway. It, oh, yeah, totally. Um, and in fact, I know, it doesn't, a, um, I know it doesn't tie in perfectly what you said, but it just it just reminded me of that verse. Well, there's a um, uh, uh, a prayer uh, in the it's one of the vesting prayers in the Latin mass. Um, uh, it's when you put on the. Uh, the surplus, no, is it the surplus? I think it is the surplus. Um, and it comes from, I believe, Romans, or no, it comes from Ephesians 4.24. And in the, the Latin text, it says, in dume domine novum hominum quia secundum Deus creatus est in justitia et sanctitati veritatis, which means clothe me, Lord, with the new man created in the image of God and the just and injustice and the holiness of truth. So the idea that, um, you, you have to clothe yourself with the new man who is the, the new man is Christ. Christ is the new Adam. And so he's the new, he is the, the perfect man, the new man, but you've got the old man who lives inside of you too. And so life is this constant. That's if you want to struggle for racial justice, fight the old man and, 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 and get on the side of the new man, clothe yourself in the image of God, in, in, in justice and the holiness of truth. Um, and that's how you fight racism. That's how you fight inequality. That's how you fight injustice. That's how you fight sin. Because there's no group of people you can go out there and go get those people and you'll solve the problem. All you'll do is make everything worse. So um, I, I know we're coming up on right at the end here. Um, two things because I'm... Well, never mind. I'm not going to worry about that. I'll say the second thing. I was just going to read a better definition of the broken window fallacy. Go ahead. I looked it up earlier, but just for anybody that's interested in it even more. But, you know, this puts it very, um, a lot more uh, clear, I guess. The, uh, the illusion that destruction and money spent in recovery from destruction is a net benefit to society. A broader application of this fallacy is the general tendency to overlook opportunity cost or that which is unseen, either in a financial sense or other. So I, I, don't, hmm. I don't know if that ties in with the, uh, what do you call it, dis, uh, distributism, but uh, it reminded me of that. And to be honest with you, I'm probably, this week I'm probably going to read about that and see if that even, even comes together. But that's what it made me think of earlier when you were, when you were mentioning it. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know enough about distributism to tell you whether that uh, ties in or not. But I, I, I mentioned distributism only because it is kind of a thing that comes about as a result of Catholic social teaching. Yeah. And if you guys if any of the listeners out there want to look more into that, um, you know, that that's that's there for you. Well, the, um, r- r- <clears throat> sorry. the other thing I did want to mention to you is uh, let me let me try to pull it up here. Um Shoot, I'm not going to be able to find it now. I had it earlier. Oh, here it is. Okay, so I know um, I wanted to see how this article that you wrote tied into uh, to what we're talking about, if we can learn anything from Little Nas X um, because of this Satan video. 
you know, uh, he has something to teach the church out of America Magazine. So I, I wanted to give, yeah, a, give, give, give the listeners some background on this. So there was an article that came out out of uh, America Magazine. <laughs> I just wanted to make a joke about you on it. But <laughs> but it, but uh, there's a lady called Sarah. Vin- Her name is Sarah Vincent. And she said, don't dismiss little Nas X because of his, quote unquote, Satan video. He has something to teach the church. And then it, and, Whoa, I, and, it, well. and it goes on. I, I kind of read a little bit of it, but I just I got tired of the diarrhea. Um, but I mean, Can you imagine the sheer arrogance of, you know, believing that a 2000 year old institution has a lot to learn from me. Uh, well, it, man, it, it goes on to talk about how awesome and talk about and sm- conceited, how smart his lyrics are in the CD. And, and, and really what it goes on, the parts that I read is about, um, you know, his struggle with coming out as a as a gay man and how the church, you know, how Christ- Christians don't accept him, so on and so forth. And one line out of it actually said in this article, excuse me, the church setting is a clear reference Okay, so let, let me get some background on this. So I guess in one of the videos, he's in a church or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but the, but there's a scene where he's uh, there's a church or he's in a church or, or whatnot. But it says the church setting is a clear reference to the unavailability of Christian weddings to gay couples. Now, what is that supposed to teach the church? <laughs> that uh, that it needs to get with the times and and and. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I sometimes think that these people just, they don't understand what it is that we're doing when we talk about sexual morality. I think in their minds that, you know, we're trying to impose some kind of a system uh, on the world that, you know, it's all about this, this patriarchal system and it's all about control and we're just out to ruin everybody's good time. Look, um, we honestly believe that this teaching about the sacrament of marriage, we honestly believe that that comes to us from Jesus of Nazareth. Take it up with him. I didn't invent this stuff. Jason didn't invent this stuff and neither did St. Augustine or anybody else. We're giving, if, listen, if you want to know what Jesus gave us in terms of a, of a religious faith, there, here it is. You want to ignore that? Hey, you do you. But, you know, I, I can't lie to you. I mean, I guess I could, but what good's that going to do? Well, I, and, I just don't. And the thing is, is just just so there, and, and I'm sure this is what you, what you implied too, but just so there's no confusion, yes, it came from Jesus, but it even, it didn't come from Jesus when, when he was living as a man on earth. It came from the very beginning, because Jesus himself said, when when he was on his time on earth what did he say it was supposed to be like this in the beginning one man one woman for life um hmm. and, and and i know this was not what our topic was about but but the article says here and, and i'll make a point on it real quick the implication is clear little nas x is not welcome because he is gay this is the reason he descends into his vision of hell Having been rejected by heaven, he feels hell is the, is the one place he can embrace his true identity. I mean, how how terrifying is that? Um, amidst the backlash it inspired, the video has been misunderstood as an attempt to shock instead of as a profoundly personal expression of religious exclusion and spiritual alienation. 
This sense of exclusion is only intensified by the subsequent music video for That's What I Want, in which Little Nas X conducts a romance with a fellow football player before discovering that the man is both closeted and married with a child. Heartbroken by the discovery, Little Nas X walks down the aisle of a church in, in a wedding dress. Standing alone in front of the altar, eyeliner running down his face, he wells, Someone to love, that's what I blank want. So and, then, and, then, okay. and that's where it talks about the church setting is in reference to unavailability. So what message does American Magazine want this to tell us? That uh, let, let's see that that we that we think if he's involved in a homosexual relationship that he's not going to be in heaven. He'll be in hell. Well, yeah, that's that's what the church teaches. If you pers anybody that persists in sin, it, it's mortal sin, and and then you know. It says, uh, where is it? Oh, about the, you know, he has visions of a football player that's closet but married with children. He can't. So what is that supposed to teach us at the church? That it's okay to divorce your wife and then live in a, in, in a sinful relationship? I mean, I, I don't understand what he's supposed to teach us. Both of which are mortally sinful and both of which, if you're unrepentant, will send you to hell. So I don't understand what message he's supposed to be sending us. Well, I also think that the thing that in there about how he's not welcome because he's gay, whoever wrote that has no understanding of what the teaching of the Catholic Church is on that. Yeah, good point. You're not. You're not. You're absolutely welcome if you're gay, because I'm welcome because I have my. I, I mean, I have my proclivities, and okay, so it's not homosexuality. I got other things that uh, I, my heart desires that it shouldn't. I'm still welcome. Of course, you're welcome. That 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 idea that we're going to find out you're gay and then kick you out of the church is not true. That's a straw man argument. That's the dumbest thing I've ever written. Now, yeah. that being said, yes, we have rules about sexual morality. We, we do. And I got to tell you, so does every other religion on earth. And that is because if you're going to, if, if you're going to transform yourself into from somebody who is, who is in who is a sinner into somebody who is a saint then you're going to have to get your arms wrapped around your baser appetites so every religion has rules about food when it's okay to eat when it's not okay to eat what is okay to eat and what's not okay to eat and they also have rules about sexual morality when is it appropriate who who may appropriately engage in sex what are the right times that uh, that someone may engage in it? What are the forbidden times? What are the forbidden ways? And I mean, yeah, they have these things because uh, to live your life without a moral code, especially as it regards to sex, mm, you try that. Actually, I don't recommend you try that. But if you try that, you'll find out pretty soon that will lead to a you will be a miserable person. Well, I mean, I mean, it's just like any other sin. It's particularly sexual. Like if I have a friend that is unfaithful to his spouse and sleeping around, I don't care that it's the opposite sex. You're going to expect me to come up to them and say, no, no, <laughs> you're wrong. You're in sin. Repent. But all of a sudden, because, because your sin is of a different sexual nature, I'm supposed to say, okay, well, that's okay. I, I, I mean, I mean, the disconnect is just baffling sometimes. Well, like I said, I, 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 I always hold the contention that modernists, they, they claim that they're so sophisticated and they're so much more educated, but 
re really, they don't know very much, even about their own religion, much less anybody else's. And this article is just another proof that they've totally misrepresented the Catholic teaching on this. And so it's not a surprise to me that they don't understand it. The, the amount of things that modernists don't understand could literally fill a library. Well, and, um, and I think that's one, you know, for me personally, that's one thing I like about this podcast that we're doing. You know, we, we mentioned it was a creative outlet for us, but even if nobody listens to this show, I mean, what are we on? Nine episodes now? To be honest, yep. I've learned quite a bit things that, I didn't know things that I thought I knew, things that I needed to be better educated on. So, you know, it this podcast has been a, a has been a journey for me in the short time we've been doing it, and and you know, and and, and that's you know that's well we preface we're not theologians, you know we're 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 just two guys with a microphone talking things out, and you know anybody that listens, yeah, don't expect that we're going to get it right every time or, or whatnot. Because sometimes we just kind of talk off the cuff, off topic, or just something that pops in the head that we don't even know the answer to. We're just talking it out. You know, we may be wrong, we may be right, but I don't know. It's been fun doing it. And maybe the modernists could take a playbook out of that. Quit thinking you know everything and say, you know what, let me just let me dialogue. And even if we're wrong, okay, let's let, let's entertain the idea for a minute that we're wrong about everything. The day I get my sexual morality from the entertainment industry is the day that I will have a tag on my toe, okay? Because um, you guys can't even seem to figure out that rape is wrong. So Ooh. let's start off the beginning. When you, when you can figure that out, then maybe you can come lecture to me about uh, the things that you're gonna teach me. But uh, as far as I can see, you guys don't know the basics. Okay, we hear stories coming out of Hollywood that, quite frankly, shock the conscience. So the day I take my sexual morality from the entertainment industry, um, that's a sad day right there. Well, so let's just let, let's 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 start from the beginning and see if you can if you guys can stop assaulting people. Um, and then if you can do that, then maybe I'll listen to what you have to say. But well, it, from what I see, I don't know. Well, it doesn't surprise me because uh, we were talking about a book yesterday. Um, what's the name of that book? Slaying Dragons. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've gotten to it, but I believe his Father Ripperger talks about much of Hollywood is either diabolically or demonically. Uh, some of them may be oppressing, but at least under the influence of the diabolic and demonic. So... You know the the you know these stories are horrifying that we hear out of Hollywood and are shocking, but if we understand what the exorcists <laughs> have seen in these situations and what they have heard, then it's really not as surprising because, I mean I mean look at their influence. Some of them have been selling their soul for fame. And uh, on that note, I have to get up and go to work in the morning, so we're gonna we're gonna call it a night. Um, <laughs> But uh, I enjoyed our I enjoyed our time together, and um, I don't know what we're going to talk about next week, but uh, I, we're definitely going to have a show, and I think it'll be interesting. Um, any any parting thoughts, Jace? No, just that we're always interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for joining us. I uh, had a great time. We'll see you all next week. God bless everybody. God bless. Mm -hmm.